It's another great day on the trails, and it couldn't be more appropriate considering today's guest, IMBA Executive Director, Mountain Bike Hall of Famer, Dave Weens. Today, Dave is probably more well known for his trail advocacy work with the International Mountain Biking Association. But in his day, Dave was a freaking pioneer on the mountain bike. Dave was racing back in the 80s and 90s. I met Dave in the 2000s at Leadville. He and his wife, Susan DiMatte, he was the freaking king of Leadville. But before that, he was on the World Cup Tour, Norba National Circuit, racing mountain bikes with all the legends. Ned Overend, Mike Closure, Rishi Graywall, John Tomac, and all the rest. Dave was definitely one of the legends I looked up to as I raced in the 80s and 90s. And today I continue to look up to his work with IMBA and advocating for trails, not just in the US, but all around the world. I'm stoked for you to get to know Dave better and the work of IMBA. So let's dive right into my conversation with Dave Weens, International Mountain Bike Association Executive Director. Uh, Dave Weens, welcome to Bike Talk with Dave. You are the second in your household to be welcomed by Bike Talk with Dave. Um, I'm thrilled to have you on, talk about mountain bikes, talk about IMBA and uh, where it's come, where it's going, and uh, a little bit about getting to know you. Thanks for having me on, Dave. It's an honor to be here. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, too. I'm referring, of course, to your lovely bride, Susan DiMattei, who was on episode 82, and uh, we talked about, I don't know, women and mountain biking, which was great. It was a treat to have her on and encourage everyone to hop on mountain bikes and enjoy the trails in your neighborhood or state or nation or world, I guess. Uh, just go out mountain biking, right? Yeah, yeah. No, she had a great time with that conversation. And um, I think it was it was fun for her to sort of, you know, relive some of those memories and, and talk about how meaningful, you know, mountain biking and trails has been in our lives and, um, you know, so many others too. And, you know, how, much, how many more people out there we know that trails and mountain biking could positively impact. Gosh, has trails been a part of your life for sure for so, so long. I want to begin with you. This could probably be a five-episode uh, conversation, but we'll try and keep it to one. Uh, but I want people to get to know you. We're certainly going to get into IMBA, the International Mountain Bike Association, which you are the executive director of, and, uh, and talk about IMBA's evolution in, uh, in the world of trails. But who the heck is Dave Weems? I hate to, I hate to tell you this. I probably shouldn't, but I'm gonna. We had a shindig last night, and uh, a whole bunch of people gathered around a fire, having some beers, and uh, questions. Oh, who are you interviewing coming up? Oh, I got Dave Weems, and just a blank look on his face. I'm like, do you not know who Dave Weems is? Um, no. I'm like, ah. So, who the heck is Dave Weens? We got to change that. We got to, we got to change that. You're probably better known in 2013. What years is 2023 as the executive director of IMBA? But I know you as a freaking rad mountain biker. Yeah, well, um, started riding mountain bikes quite a while ago. I, I never call myself a pioneer. I'm like a second or third generation pioneer. Uh, those guys go back so far. 
But, um, you know, I was just a, a suburban Denver kid growing up and, you know, played little league football and um, rode bicycles. You know, that was certainly something that, that got me right out of the gate was the bicycle. And what it was was it was for freedom and exploration. And I would just go. In fact, I, I hear a story. I don't remember this. But when I was two, apparently I just hopped on my trike and took off. From, from our house and my mom came out and I was nowhere to be seen and I had just ridden my trike you know three or four blocks away to the local playground and I was you know playing on the slide or something and uh, so I mean that and that really you know that that hasn't changed a whole lot today getting on a bike in a new place or even around here where I've lived you know so long there's still you know rides and roads I've not explored and um you know, I'll get on my bike and I'll go out and, and see what I can find. So that that piece hasn't changed. And that was, you know, that was whatever tricycle that was. That was a bike with train wheels. I vividly remember my dad taking the train wheels off, um, getting that first bike when I was six, uh, riding that bike for a while. And then a, a Schwinn Varsity, uh, rode a Schwinn Varsity all over suburban Denver, you know, first gear, fifth gear, 10th gear. It was might as well have been a three speed rather than a 10 speed. Uh, those those brake levers up on the on the tops that, that we all like to ride on, uh, and then got a driver's license and put the bike away. So you know that kind of confirmed for me at least for that time. It was you know then I was exploring from a vehicle and I had skis and a kayak. Um, tr tried to get into mountain biking, but if if you can remember that time, there weren't a lot of mountain bikes. Specialized stump jumper was certainly the one that everybody knew about. But for me, I was a, a very avid skier um, and, and whitewater kayaker. And so I had kayaks and I had skis. And so I just, I didn't ever have the money for a mountain bike until say 1985. Uh, worked in a store, uh, sporting goods store in Denver. Um, and we sold bicycles. We sold 10 speeds primarily and BMX bikes. And the owners of the store didn't bring mountain bikes in. They said, ah, oh, that's just a fad. It's not gonna, it's not gonna keep going. But they were a specialized dealer, so they could sell specialized accessories. So through the rep, I bought a, a 1985 specialized stump jumper on closeout and um, got that and, and actually moved to Jackson Hole with it uh, for the winter to be a ski bum and uh, didn't really ride it there. And then uh, went to Alaska that next summer. So the first single track mountain biking that I really did was uh, 1986 in Alaska in, of all places, Denali National Park which I'm sure now those trails are all closed to bikes at that time, you know, they weren't closed to anything. They were just trails. And, and, um, I remember having a bell on the bike. People are like, Oh yeah, you want to put a bell on there. So you don't, you know, get eaten. You can scare the grizzlies away. Um, and I'm riding in jeans and flannel and, um, but you know, having just such a great time, um, you know, riding trails. That, that was the thing about mountain bike. I think that hooked all of us in, you know, you could go out on a gravel road or a, you know, some, you know, bike path and like, oh, this is pretty cool. But as soon as you got on a single track trail that had the sort of, you know, the sweeping turns, the undulations, the challenges of rocks and roots and ruts, um, challenging ups, challenging downs, you know, we were all pretty hooked into that pretty quickly, even though, you know, compared to today, those bikes were, were, were pretty awful. They were pretty amazing at that time. You could definitely go about anywhere. You just like you said, there weren't trails that were designated open for mountain. They were just trails and you just went down them. I remember getting lost in the jungle along the freaking Des Moines River, like a mile from my house. 
and I could have been a thousand miles away, but um, exploring through the, I just remember lush green branches, like crawling through sticks and just exploring. And it was awesome. And that bike could go anywhere. My first mountain bike was a kind of clunker era, 1969 Schwinn tornado that I put a five-speed drill here on, and I still have that bike today. But that was my first mountain bike, was uh, an old clunker era. And then uh, then, I got a, then I got a giant iguana, which, a quick story about that. Uh, I worked in a bike shop, and we sold giants, and we put on the marquee out front on the sign, come see our giant iguana. <laughs> we literally had people come into the store looking for a giant iguana, and they were so disappointed that it was a bike, but... <laughs> That uh, that was my second mountain bike, and I I rode that for a long time as well. But yeah, they were they were just a ticket to get beyond the boundaries that your feet could take you. Yeah, yeah, and you know, in my mind, um, at that time, I equated mountain biking with backpacking. It was it wasn't I never really did equate it with just going for for sort of you know quick rides near where you live to go for a ride. It was. Somehow this must be something for, for going into the backcountry uh, on a multi-day trip. And it was probably 1987 that I had some paperboy baskets for my Schwinn Varsity, big steel baskets that went on the back like panniers. I fashioned those onto, no, no, this is 80, this is 83 because it was a, a, I did have kind of a, another mountain bike. It was a beach cruiser. It was a terrible, it had side pole brakes. Anyway, I did try mountain biking on that. It didn't work very well, but I, I went on a bike packing trip in 83 or 84 um, where, you know, I loaded this basket up with all my backpacking stuff. And so all the weight was in the back. I picked a trail near Steamboat that was just terribly steep. I had to push the trail up. I'm wearing, again, jeans and a flannel and my kayaking helmet. Push this bike all the way up this trail. Finally, it flattens out. I get on the single track and I'm going along and it's just amazing. But if I hit a little rock or a root, the front end would just kind of float because there was so much weight in the back. And then it was just phenomenal. And within, I don't know, a quarter of a mile, the entire rear derailleur just just broke. <laughs> and I was done. I camped right there. Uh, and, I, and I went out the next day. But I couldn't even lower my seat because I had, it was for an, it had an app. It had a quick release. And I switched that out for a little BMX Allen. Didn't have a tool with me. So I couldn't even lower the seat to kind of, you know, ride with my feet down. And so I just bombed down these and crash and these hikers coming up were just looking at me like, where did planet did this guy come from? Um, but yeah, eventually I, I, and then I didn't go back bikepacking again until 2020. Um, so yeah, what I thought maybe this bike was all about initially, obviously left the building for, for decades. Um, but bikepacking is another thing that I think is really cool. And, uh, I'm very passionate about, even though I don't get to do it very much. Uh, it is super cool and definitely a cool segment of that you can do on mountain bikes, but you pinned a number on instead. Um, I want to say mid to late eighties, you began racing the, uh, Norba circuit and got pretty good. Yeah. So the, the, in Alaska, actually, I did a couple mountain bike races in mountain bikers of Alaska and mountain bike, uh, Association of Alaska, MBAA. And, um, I'll, I just heard about a couple races at these Nordic, Nordic areas and went and did them and had a great time. I think I was, they had two races, an 8K and a 16K. And they had that, that format for both of these races on different weekends. And I, we all did both races. And I remember, I think I got third um, all all three races. But 
um, it was really fun. It was it was super intense, and I liked that about it. Um, and it was hard, you know, the physical part. So that was sort of, I think, maybe my my first bite of of, of, of mountain bike racing. But living in Gunnison, and you know, I'm, I'm putting these pieces together out of order. But I'd gone to school here from Denver in 1982 and 83, and then I'd taken some time off and moved around. And, and when I came back, a lot of my buddies had started racing mountain bikes. So it was really easy for me just to slot in with those guys and start going to the races. And that would have been uh, 1987, the year after I was in Alaska. So just did some Colorado races. Um, Really good racer here named Dave Moe, uh, Dave Meyer. He would load us up in a van and take us to these different races. Uh, The Mosquito Pass Challenge, a race over in the Wet Mountain Valley near West Cliff, uh, Winter Park. And so kind of cut my teeth around here, but it just happened that when I would go to those races, usually Ned Overend was racing, Mike Closer was racing, you know, all the pros, Rishi Graywall, John uh, Weisenreeder, um, a lot of the, the pros that were, you know, the best in the world at the time, because the world really was Colorado and California, um, happened to race in, in the state of Colorado. And a lot of times I started in the expert class, pros and experts would race together. So I was getting, you know, good quality experience right from the beginning, even even though that first summer I raced in the expert class. But um, yeah, so then, you know, then you realize this Norman National thing exists and there was a, a Norman National in Durango that was the first one. Actually, maybe it was the second one. And, and in 1988 or 89, I had my mom help me get to Atlanta to do the first Norman National. And then the second Norman National was in Durango. So I could kind of see how I stacked up at that point. And I think I was maybe in the top 10 or 15 in points after that. So went to the race in Michigan and, and um, you know, a, a racer, in addition to my mom being a good sponsor, uh, another racer who really helped me out was Greg Herbold. Uh, met him early on, HB, and he would sport me. If I, if I could get myself, you know, to the airport, you know, he would take me to the venue in the rental car and I could sleep in his motel room and, um, he introduced me to, you know, the, the Shimano folks and different people like that. Um, and then Gunnison's program here, the bike shop, the tune-up bike and ski RIP, uh, had a, they sold Diamondback. So Diamondback gave them five bikes and they gave them to their, their shop riders and they had a shop team. So in, in 80, um, 88, I was on that shop team. So I was riding a Diamondback, you know, kind of four Diamondback in the shop. So that's how I got the relationship with Diamondback that eventually... Uh, became what we called a factory ride back then, uh, thanks to mountain bike action and their their connection to motocross action. They brought the whole world of of uh, moto into into the mountain biking world. So um, yeah, I was really fortunate just to be here, be with a crew that was racing bikes, and I could learn from. And then being go, going to the races against some really high level competition, the best that was available at the time, to learn from them as well. And, um, you know, Ned was great. I could pick his brain. I remember picking his brain at Moab one time and, um, you know, a few different times he gave me, you know, some really good advice. And uh, so there, there was, it was a very friendly scene. I mean, I'm sure it was competitive, but I don't remember, um, you know, hardly anything that was ever, you know, overly competitive or negative. Obviously, everybody wanted to win and you you'd do that as, you know, try as hard as you could to do that. But once that was done, you know, everybody was uh, really cordial and friendly and, uh, it was a you know became a really good friend group as well. Uh, definitely, some great names that uh, you grew up with there. I can't get over the fact that you said oh, I'm not really a pioneer, and it's like 
first Norba Nationals, first this, first that. Uh, you're definitely on the front end of the pioneering spirit in the world of mountain biking, for sure. Um, I mean, gosh, just think about the bikes and how they've evolved. I, I suppose, I'm trying to think of when our shifters started to click. It was right around 87, 88, but we started with friction shifting. We had 15 speeds, you know, eventually, not eventually, but in the 80s, like then 18 speeds and then 21 speeds when there were seven and back. And oh my, how that has evolved. No, toe, toe, clips, and now toe clips and straps and, and toe clips and straps. Through, um, the, the top, the, the bar top shifters, and then Mike Closer started to, to put them underneath so they were more accessible. And then Shimano was very astute because they had engineers over here and they saw what he was doing. And so pretty soon, I think when they started to develop rapid fire, they're like, okay, it doesn't make sense for it to be up here. It should be down here. Um, there was a race in Vail in 88 where they presented John Tomac with the first set of two finger levers. And everyone else was like, oh man. And John Tomac, you know, we still had those big old motorcycle levers. Oh, they were right off a motorcycle. Yeah. They were the size of size of your two hands, really. Huge. And it was 1990, Huge. maybe toward the beginning of the year, May or June, when Shimano showed us the first SPDs. And we're like, oh, I don't know, man. That, you know, <laughs> really? And um, and then RockShocks, uh, 1990 was, was, and actually Greg Herbold was testing RockShocks, maybe Tom Rogers in 89 and uh, Doug Redberry and Manitou were doing some testing. Those were the two, you know, platforms at the time. And then, um, you know, I got on those in, in 1990, I went to Paul Turner's garage, which was rock shocks Inc at the time, his house. And uh, I said, man, I just checked out the park city, Norman national course. It's going to be super rough. It's just dirt. It's going to fall apart. And I'd love to have some front suspension. And he put, you know, rock shocks RS ones on my bike and uh, I went to Park City, and I actually I won that race. It was the first Norman National, and and John Tomac was second with a pair of Manitou's, even though he was riding drop bars at the time. Um, you know, then I think because because even front suspension, people are like, yeah, I don't know, you know, kind of heavy. I'm not sure right. it's going to make a difference. And after that, you know, they had a couple examples of of guys doing pretty well with with those. And you know, by the end of the year, everybody was on them. And even Ned at the World Championships in Durango had a pair of RS ones, of course, with the the decals ripped off, but, um, you know, yeah, the, the, the technology that was happening then isn't unlike, you know, disc brakes, tubeless tires, one by dropper posts. There's, you know, all the, it just continues to happen, which I think is what has made this sport so engaging. Now the bikes are so amazing, so fun to ride. Um, the technology just keeps, just keeps going. Is there a favorite technological change? I mean, you've seen bikes from the clunkers to what we have today, the freaking spaceships we have today. Is there a favorite or some favorite changes that uh, that you've well, you've those, had? those four that I mentioned are the are I think one of the reasons that I still really enjoy mountain biking is tubeless gave gives us the ability to ride much lower pressure, so we have better traction, and better traction is is huge. Go climbing, cornering, the whole nine. Dropper post, anybody who knows and understands a dropper post realizes what a game changer that is for descending. And then disc brakes, go back to rim brakes and then, you know, tell me you don't want your disc brakes back. Uh, and then the one by, the one by, 
you remember that front derailleur shift was always sketchy. I mean, you just knew oh, for it was sure. going to happen. You had to really think that think through that shift. And so that one maybe not as important as those other three, but it, it, it is important because you know not having to worry about that particular shift uh, is really nice. And there's probably you know some young kids today that don't even know what I'm talking about. But um, you know shifting that front chain ring, it was always it was either going to drop or it was going to jam unless you were really yep. precise and careful and, and a little bit lucky. Uh, so I mean those are the ones that I really think about. Obviously the the you know full suspension, but I'd take a hard tail and a dropper before I'd ride a full suspension in the high post. <laughs> hmm. Um that's kind of funny. Is there a technology you miss? Um you know, every once in a while this is not really a technology, but I, I my hands would pine for the bar ends. And um, you know, I was a big bar ends guy, loved them back in the day, and you know, Shimano even had the bar end shifter for there for a little while. Um, it didn't last long and, and now, you know, bar ends are, are pretty much non-existent. Um, but I still feel that advantage. Sometimes I'll put them on my fat bike in the winter and you can just get a little bit more comfortable hand position. You don't have to hold the bars quite as tight on a steep climb, um, but they're just not cool. So nobody uses them. <laughs> I do still have uh, maybe two bikes with some uh, Argon, uh, grips with the little the little nubbies that stick out the front sure. i do still have at least one maybe two maybe our tandem has those but i do love those um say for me two peak toe peak toe peak toe peak thank you um you're kind of a toe peak dude yeah, yeah. The, well, I've been with the, the Topeak Ergon mountain biking team. Uh, we ride Canyon bicycles. This is, it's been uh, 2008, so almost, well, 15 years. 15, 15 years. Yeah. Um, those, uh, Kirkove is an Iowa guy. Sure. And, uh, you know, he came out, he showed us those grips, and I don't know, they were $32 or something for a set of grips. And I remember making fun of him. I'm like, dude, nobody's going to pay $32 for a set of stupid grips. And then I did a 24-hour race, and I won a pair. They're on every bike I own now. Yeah. I love them. They make such a difference. Yeah. Having a platform for your hand, they don't fall asleep. Yeah. They're great. They're, they're awesome. They're, they're fantastic. And really, I got um, associated with them because in 2007, I was setting up my Leadville bike, and I wanted bar ends on it. But, you know, there were no more bar ends available, but, but Ergon had the grips with bar ends. So Steve Bemke was the, the guy at the time, an old, an old name from, from mountain bike racing. And he was with Ergon and I just, you know, I got a pair of grips from him and they worked great. And I didn't think much about them until I took them off and went back to a round grip. And I was like, ah, you know, I'd really gotten used to the platform. So I agree. They're game changers. Uh, I've got them on all my bikes, of course. And, and like I say, a few, a few bikes, I still have the the bar ends on. Uh, I like that technology. And then they've, th that brand has come so far with um, not only the grips, but their saddles are phenomenal. Their packs. Um, it, it's a, it's a great brand. I love being associated with those guys. Uh, they've been really good to me over the years and they make great products and they've got a little something for everybody. Um, you know, started with the, the big platform grip and they still have that, but now they've got, you know, some of the, the, you know, the, most badass downhill guys and, and free ride guys on the, and, and girls on the circuit using their, uh, you know, different grips in their line and, uh, pretty, pretty good stuff. 
my wife and I just put some uh, saddlebags on our bikes. Topeak. So they make everything and, and oh yeah, love them. Catalog, great, great quality. Catalog is, is like, uh, like those catalogs that we used to look through from Sears when we were kids uh, around Christmas time. There's, there's so much amazing product, whether it's tools or packs or um, electronics. There, there's a lot, and they're, they're constantly innovating. Um, it's, it's a great brand. Yeah, well, it looks like it's been a great relationship for you for, well, 15 years. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned Leadville, and uh, you and I, slash you and we, my wife and I, shared a starting line there. But I actually want to go back a little earlier than that. The first starting line that I know of that you and I shared was Schwamigan, 1999. That was my first Schwamigan. And uh, <laughs> I reached out to Gary Crandall to see if he could find a photo. And uh, he's like, no, but... Dave's got a great story about that year. Be sure and ask him about his ride. So via Gary Crandall, tell me about your 1999 Schwamigan. Did I beat you? Did you finish? Yeah. <laughs> I was I was second in 99 to Marty Jamison, U.S. Postal, you know, not fresh off of, but from the tour that summer um, that they had won with U.S. Postal and Lance. So I went there on my way to the world championships, which, which were in Chateau de Switzerland. So it just kind of made sense for me to hit a race on the way uh, the week before. And it happened to be Shawamigan. I'd always heard a lot about it. Always wanted to do it. And um, lined up there and, and um, just started the race. And before I knew it, Marty was gone. And me and Steve Tilford were together. So and, and that was it. You know, I don't know who was behind us or how far, but... Steve and I rode that entire race together. And we chased and chased and chased and... Every once in a while, the sight line would give us Marty, but um, or we'd get a, a split, and it was always you know a minute, minute thirty. Uh, we couldn't really get get close to him. But what happened there was I don't know two thirds of the way through the race, probably after Fire Tower, we're you know and that's a fast course. It was a fast year. It was dry, so we're flying. There's this downhill into kind of a sandy wash area, and there was a lot of of, of debris, wood debris in this area. And, and Steve's on my wheel and we're just trading poles. We're just back and forth, you know, doing everything we can to try to get up to Marty. Um, and as soon as we hit the transition in there, my front wheel just stopped dead. And so I just flew over the bars till he crashed into me. We both just went, I mean, it, it was, it was a phenomenal crash because we were going fast and we just, it was instantaneous. We were both just, you know, over the bars we kind of pick ourselves up. Uh, are you all right? Yeah. Are you all right? Yeah. Okay. And he, he gets on his bike. I get on my bike and we start going. We don't even know what happened. Or, or actually when I picked up my bike, I realized what happened. I had this little root ball was wedged into my spokes and it had just, you know, gotten picked up in my spokes and gone up and hit the shock and, and stopped the bike. And it was still wedged in there. So I pulled that out and I threw it down and we get on our bikes. And I said, hold on a second. I actually want to keep that. And I went back and I got it and I stuck it in my pocket until he was Stop shaking it. his head like, Wings, you're, you're like an idiot. Um, I'm like, oh, you're crazy. I've got this called the shrine and this is perfect for the shrine. So um, we're back on the gas chasing and never caught Marty. I think Steve flatted because uh, we would it would have come down to a sprint between the two of us and he would have cleaned my clock, no doubt. But he got a flat right toward the end. So I think I ended up rolling into second. He rolled in third. Marty was a couple minutes ahead of us, um, but he thought he got such a kick out of me going back and getting that. Um, you know, he wrote about it in his blog once, and 
And um, and I remember Tilly from just from racing. He was he was such a, a big personality, such a fun guy, such a genuine guy. Um, you know, really. Um, I mean, he was unique, but he also was very much in character with the way mountain biking was at that time. You know, just a lot of fun people, and you know, try to win every race we line up for, but know that we're out there trying to do that against you know a bunch of buddies. So. Um, yeah, I miss Tilly a lot. And he came here and raced the Growler not too many years ago. Uh, it was great to see him for that. And our paths would cross at, at different different points along the way, uh, along with Trudy. And um, big presence, very important to, to to bicycle racing in general and bikes. And he touched he's touched so many people in so many different aspects of of cycling. Um, and he's 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 well remembered, but he's he's very well missed too. Mm, big time. We do miss him. Uh, I'm in Iowa and he would come up for races here randomly. Uh, he'd just show up for a local road race cause they had nothing else going on in Kansas. So he'd load the van up and Catherine Wahlberg and, oh, there was kind of a, um, I don't know, uh, Ferris wheel of, of people that, uh, would hop in the van with him and come up and race. And we always both loved and hated when he'd show up because he would certainly animate the animate the race for sure. He was never content to just sit and let the race happen. Yeah. He made it happen. Yeah, yeah. One more Tilly story really quick. I forgot about this. Um, when I was the director of the mountain sports team at Western, we have a collegiate uh, mountain bike team. They were heading for nationals in, in North or South Carolina. And I get this phone call. Hey, we're in Topeka. And we hit a deer and, you know, our, our headlights are broken or something. I'm like, oh. You know, we can't, what are we going to do? They had some issue they had to get fixed and it was at night. And I called Tilly and Tilly goes over there and he MacGyvered whatever, whatever was broken. He MacGyvered it back together and got them on the road. So just another example of not racing, but how, how Tilly touched, you know, a whole van load of collegiate bike racers and kept them going towards their destination just, you know, with his ingenuity. Uh, and his, his generosity, you know, he, he didn't even think twice. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll help him out. And I'll do whatever I can. And um, I'm sorry, I just flashed on that. But that's, that was a great story, too. Yeah, I'm sure they're still talking about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, you remember the night when Tilly fixed our headlights? Got us to the race. Um, well, you've also crossed paths with a couple of other guys who I would say are household names, at least in the cycling world. Um, Floyd Landis and Lance Armstrong, Leadville. You were the man. Uh, I don't think anyone's even come close to six wins, have they? No. Um, and, you know, truth be told, I never set out to do that. That just kind of happened. I, mean, I was kind of out of racing at the time, but I still was, you know, wanted to race. And it was, it was a couple hours from here. Pretty easy for me to train for that one race. And, and truly, I was... I was kind of training for one race in those years and it was that one. And I'd do the firecracker 50 for training and maybe one other race, but um, you know, it just worked out, but now it's so much more competitive too. not to, not to, you know, say something about, you know, the, the competition that I had at the time, but there's so much more depth now. Um, if, if anybody can do it, but, you know, someone's gonna have to want to do it too. Uh, but that race is, I mean, it's turned into a really big deal. Um, you know, I listened to, to some of the podcasts and, and read things, and I'm like, dang, Leadville's a, a, it's a much bigger deal now than it was when I was doing it, um, especially among the pros. And I guess that was kind of what my thought was at the time was, 
dang, this is a really compelling race. It feels like, you know, if, if more good riders did it, um, they would enjoy this experience, not because it's a bunch of single track. It's not that, but it's, it's a, a long road race on mountain bikes, essentially, uh, with a lot of varied terrain. It's not just climbing. It's not, there's, there's flats, there's undulations, there's, you know, it's not, and there are some climbs, there's no question about it, but um, there's a lot more to it than that. And I, I would really like, I enjoyed the training for it because I felt like it checked all the different boxes, steep climbing, moderate climbs, rolling terrain. Um, you know, it had just flats, dead flats. You gotta be able to power the flats. Um, but you know, someone eventually will do it because that's what happens. Records get broken. Um, but I'm just in awe of the, the men and women that race that thing today because it's just, and like always, I'm in awe of everybody who decides to just do that regardless of what their goals are. Because as you know, it's it's a hard, long day no matter what. And, um, you know, it, it, it's great that people still, uh, you know, see a challenge like that and go, yeah, you know what, I think I can do that. And and they line up there at 6th and Harrison and, and give it a go. It's such an appealing race for both the front end and the back end, there are people who say, I just want to finish under 12 hours and get the belt buckle. There are people who don't care about 12 hours. They just want to be able to complete yeah. it no matter how long it right. takes. And uh, and everything in between. I want to get the big buckle. I want to beat my time from last year. Um, whatever it is, it's it's a cool race that is has so much for so many, yeah. which is, is kind of fun. Uh, 545. Can you even believe that Keegan this year? I can, um, just because I, I just, I've been following him. I don't know Keegan, but just following him and seeing what he's done and knowing what his mindset was based on what I've heard, you know, going into that race and how they were, he was, he was searching for speed from start to finish. And, um, and he's just, he's, he's, he's incredible. He's an amazing athlete. And, uh, you know, he put it all together on that day, but he seems to put it all together on a lot of days. So he's, he does, really, doesn't he's he? really fun to watch. And, you know, I think some of my friends, they watch the tour and follow pro cycling close. And, you know, when Sep won the Vuelta, that was awesome. But I wasn't I wasn't hanging on. I just get my updates. But I really follow the Lifetime Grand Prix a lot more because I know more of the, of the riders in there. I don't know anybody other than Sep, you know. And I actually kind of know a little bit some of the folks um, that are racing the Lifetime Grand Prix. And it's, it's pretty compelling racing, uh, both on the men's and women's side. So that's sort of the... The, the only place I, I nerd out on, on bike racing now is is uh, the Lifetime Grand Prix. I honestly, I don't know if you would take credit, but, and it's not just you because it was a um, kind of a, a group of characters that made this race what it is today, in my opinion. And that's, I mean, it, it really kind of changed when Landis showed up. And I want to say that was 2007. Yeah. Yeah, 2007, Floyd Landis coming off his um, quote-unquote Tour de France victory. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take on the king of Leadville, Dave Weens, and see what I can do. And you took him. Yeah, yeah, but the, the truth of that story is that he was actually, he didn't probably even know I was there, although we knew each other from mountain bike racing. He said he heard Lance was going to do it. Because Lance announced in the end of 2006 that he was going to do Leadville. And we have Chris Carmichael to thank for all this because it was Chris Carmichael truly that I, I believe blew up Leadville. Chris Carmichael doesn't get Lance in the race. Lance never talks about the race. 
Floyd never comes. It might not be the race it is today, but with Chris Carmichael's involvement from bringing a lot of uh, CTS, you know, training camp folks to Leadville for years because it was a, an important, you know, coaching piece for those guys. He mentioned it to Lance. Lance became interested in it, decided to do it. Said in 2000, December 2006, I'm doing the Leadville 100. Floyd said, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it, too. Lance said, actually, I got something going on that weekend because he didn't want to get kind of I remember that. And, and so then, but Floyd still showed up, had a great race with Floyd. That was probably the most intense race I ever had because it was just nip and tuck the whole way. Um, and then Lance did come in 2008, and, and we had a good race that year, and I was able to beat him. And then he came back in 2009 and just crushed me. Um, and then that really, Levi came in 2010 and Todd Wells and JHK and Jeremiah Bishop, um, Rebecca Rush, you know, had, had her string of wins and that really kind of, I think got the women's field going. So it would be interesting to know because I didn't do it. I, I don't have enough notoriety to have lifted the profile of that race, but Lance absolutely did. And so I just happened to be the guy that was, that was there, um, when Lance decided to show up and race. And I, that, I think the the compelling part of that story is you because you're I don't know at that when Landis showed up three or four time defending champion and hometown favorite for sure Colorado favorite for sure and you beat him if Landis had just rolled off and left you forty five minutes behind I don't think it would have been the story that it was. If Armstrong would have just rolled off and left you 45 minutes behind, I don't think it would have been the story it turned into. But you beat those guys. And I think that's really where that story begins to like bloom and and bring the notoriety to Leadville. And, and Lance is like, I'm going to beat that MFR. <laughs> you know, I'm coming back again. Like, I, I got to win Leadville. Of course, he did. But uh, I, I feel like that's part of the story that we definitely, those are the years we were coming, which by the way, I have to tell you, like D and I on tandem are crawling on our hands and knees up Columbine uh, on the gravel road that leads to Columbine pass or Columbine turnaround. You're ripping down. We can literally hear you guys two switchbacks above us. You sound like a jet engine roaring down that gravel road, both you and Armstrong yelled, go tandem, <laughs> as you flew by us at 50 miles an hour or whatever. And that always stuck to with uh, D and I. Like, uh, those guys are great dudes. Like, that was that was awesome. Well, Dave, but, the uh, tandem in that race is is off the, off the hook. I mean, when, when, we, when we see tandems, and there's, what, usually five or six maybe, um, if that, it's, you know – like that's amazing to to do that. That's a whole different. That's a whole different deal. So, that's that's very cool. We uh, we loved it. I I had to do a test run one year, and I came home and I'm like, D and I had been doing tandem on uh, at Schwamigan for a couple of years, and I'm like, I think Leadville would go. There's tandems there. I think we could do it. She's like, you get us a new tandem with suspension and I'll do it. So I got on the phone right away. I got us a tandem, six inches of travel front and rear, and I needed every inch of those six inches. That's fantastic. But uh, yeah, we loved it. We did it four times and um, uh, two times podium, which was awesome. And two times 
great stories just to get to the finish line, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Sometimes it's a it's a good story better than a, a place, but uh, we definitely loved those years. But those were our same years. So you and, and Lance and Landis and we saw, <laughs> we just kept having to start further and further up the hill by that gym in Leadville. And it was because of the great racing up front that you and and the other uh, Tour de France boys brought to the table. So I, I feel like you have a big part in making it what it is today. Well, it was a fun, it was a fun time for me. You know, it was a good, it was a good challenge um, to know I was going to get to race against those guys and the races themselves were fun. But as you know, um, from being a bike racer, it, the, the, the training was, was all of it. And, um, you know, I trained as if Lance was going to be there in the Floyd year. And I trained as if Lance was going to be there in the first, you know, and the second Lance. I trained hard. But those were the first years I really started to train, you know, train for that race. Mm -hmm. I would ride a lot in those those other years. But, you know, in 2007, when I knew Floyd was coming and Lance might still be there, uh, I dusted off the old cross-country training and put together a, you know, a five- or six-week program beginning with the uh, Firecracker 50. And then had a lot of good miles in before that, too. Um, but took it took it seriously, and that was fun for me because you know I love the, the planning, the preparation, the training uh, is is actually more fun than racing. The racing is the cherry on top, the training is the journey, the racing is the destination. Yep, we we always enjoyed that whole weekend out there, and uh, like you said, it's a capstone to the season of training yeah. and uh, a celebration of of great riding. I have one more question about Leadville and. <laughs> I don't know if you remember, I asked you about this in a parking lot at Copper Mountain the night after the race, maybe the day after the race, you were probably like home showered and back in Gunnison by the time we finished. But um, coming up to Powerline, the first year with Lance, you told me a story about him looking up at that thing and and asking you a bit about it. Do you remember that story? Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, and and it just at some point, as we were approaching Powerline, we weren't necessarily right at the bottom of it. It was you could tell it was on his mind. And he said, "So do you do you walk or do you ride Powerline?" And I said, uh, "I always walk it. I've never I never had even tried to ride it. I would just you know ride it as far as I could. You know how it kind of it kind of switches back this way and then gets super steep." And then I would just yep. step off and, and push up it. And that would be the only section that I would push, except, do you remember the, the North Face or the Cobra? You know, that yep. was a, absolutely a mandatory hike-a-bike. So Leadville used to have, you know, for sure that hike-a-bike. And it's a pretty long one. And then for me, also, it was, it was Powerline. I never had to get off on Columbine. But so I, I trained to push my bike up hills. And I was really good at it. <laughs> and you can see that there's actually a video on the internet of 2008 at the Cobra. And I step off my bike, Lance shifts into his granny gear and he keeps climbing, eventually spins out his, his shorts catch on the seat and he's straddling his bike. And I just go, you know, walking by him and I've got, you know, 40, 50 meters on him at the top. That was, you know, what I call sort of a, a, a gut punch to see what he has and make him come back to me. Um, but I feel kind of the same. Like I think it's it might be faster to ride it, but maybe it's more efficient to push your bike up. But if you lose three or four or five seconds pushing, but what you know, I can stretch my back, I can stretch my legs, you know, and then I hop back on. But uh, he didn't answer that. He said, 
do you think we'll walk or ride? I said, well, I usually walk it, or I always walk it. That was it. He didn't respond. And so we get there. And if you remember that year, the traction was actually pretty good. There had been some rain, and that was, uh, it was as good as it gets. And he just never, he just never came off. But that was probably the, the best fitness I've had for the way I felt during the race. I had a faster time in 2010, but I just felt really good going up it. So we climbed it and then went over the top. You know, you got that little descent. And then, and then it's not near as steep, but it's still pretty tough climbing and it's, it's rockier. And um, again, I, had, I gapped him to where I couldn't see him when I got to the top of, of Powerline. And instead of like, like oh, I'm going to attack and, 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 you know, try to lose him here, I just, you know, I just kind of was cautious going down Sugarloaf and eventually he got back on. And um, I think it, that was just telling me that, that maybe I was a little bit stronger than him. Um, so in hindsight, you know, riding it may have been a good idea for him or may not. I don't know. I don't know if he trained to push his bike as much as I did. <laughs> that was probably the first year it was ridden. I bet there's guys, and I'm sure of it, um, and maybe even some, some ladies who have ridden it in the past. Like if you were to find all the people who have raced Leadville, you'd find, I would, I would guess you'd find several that, that could raise their hand and say, I actually rode Powerline. Um, so, you know, for me, it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was that I didn't want to do it. It was a strategic decision to step off. Now, I tried to ride it in 2009 and 2010. Neither of those years I could. I just couldn't make it. I would have to I'd get as far as I could, and then I'd step off and push the rest of the way. It's a, t it's a tough one, and it comes so, so deep in the race, too. It does. Uh, speaking from the middle of the race somewhere, I never saw anyone ride it. Okay. That's for sure. Well, maybe not. As an eyewitness. Now, I mean, there's people in front of me, two hours in front of me, that may have ridden it, but I never witnessed anyone riding up that thing. That was a hard, uh, just steep and really deep ruts yeah man i'm just having nightmares of pushing that tandem up there <laughs> um you know d would d would give me a shove here and there on some steep parts but man that thing was just a a beast to get up but super fun great memories yeah, yeah. great great memories and super fun to see where it's come it's such a competitive race these days and i enjoy on this podcast talking to um the guys who do it cole Patton and uh, Rose Grant won it a couple of years, and um, it's just fun to see what it has become. And and again, I give credit to you for being competitive when Landis and Armstrong showed up. Well, thank you. So there you go. Yep, you bet. Okay, so uh, I hit you originally with, hey, I want to talk about IMBA and, and where it's come from and where it's going and it's um, seemingly good health today. And I suppose we should get to that, huh? Sure, sure. You bet. <laughs> um, I have to kind of laugh because when I was talking to uh, Susan, I I stumbled over your title. I was like, is he like board like director? She's like, I, I think they call him executive director. And I want to I want to clean my statement up because geez, man, you were first on the board, then you were president of the board, and now you're executive. So you've served about every role there at IMBA. Um, and I'm curious how you got there, and I, I can kind of see a thing, your work in Gunnison on the trails. I can see your trail to uh, executive director, but 
first of all, what is IMBA? How do you describe IMBA? What's the mission of IMBA? And what's your role there? How'd you get there? Uh, well, you know, we have a, a mission statement and vision and values and all that, um, you know, kind of typical corporate speak. Um, but, you know, the simplest way to think of IMBA is that, you know, we try to do everything we can to help communities realize great trails. And trails close to home are really important. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to lose sight of the iconic backcountry uh, experiences that we all uh, are probably thinking about when we're riding our trails close to home. But, you know, most of the time we're having to ride our local trails. And I've just, I think, you know, a lot of advocates that uh, started mountain biking either now or when I did or any time in between, if there weren't good trails where you lived, you, you knew what good trails were like and how, how great they would be to have. And so mountain bikers really pursued, you know, trail development anywhere that there were mountain bikers. And and that was my story here. Yeah, I was a bike racer, but instead of putting my feet up, um, I would be out, you know, helping out, digging in the dirt, um, working on the trails in the area to to make the trail system around Gunnison better. And that was primarily the Hartman Rocks area. Um, and we had the Cook Brothers and some others doing work up in Crested Butte, you know, opening that trail system up. And it was happening in Frua and it was happening in the UK and it was happening in, in Australia and New Zealand and, and everywhere else that there were mountain bikes and mountain bikers. There were some folks who were, who were digging in the dirt and, you know, improving and expanding the network of great trails. And, you know, going back a little bit for IMBA, IMBA really was born out of access fights and trying to get bikes to be allowed on existing trails because there was no really very little or no trail development taking place as mountain bikes were, were born. It was just whatever trails happened to be out there were there and, um, Mount Tam, wow, these trails are great. Oh, got to get these bikes off these trails. Um, and they did there and, um, and they still are, although they're making, they're making some progress, uh, even, uh, even out there in the Marin County area, uh, with, with bike access. But so Imba really worked hard to, to get bicycles access to trails and we're very successful in a lot of ways. So then at the same time, the trail development started happening and Imba became, you know, really, uh, important and knowledgeable in sustainable trail planning and design and construction. And, you know, we were maintaining a lot of trails and we were realizing a lot of trails weren't sustainable. They carried too much water. So IMBA and folks who worked for IMBA or with IMBA or around IMBA started to develop these techniques, you know, rolling grade construction. Don't build a water bar, just have your trail give up the water naturally. Um, and so then they developed trail solutions as um, you know, part of the, the IMBA family that, that planned, designed, and built trails and sort of spawned what is today the modern trail building industry. And if you look at a lot of the leaders in the industry, a lot of them um, have roots at IMBA back in the day, you know, cut their teeth with Rich Edwards and Joey Klein and, and some of those folks. And um, there's a ton of great expertise out there. And not all of them came through IMBA, especially now, because now it's been around for so long that you're having the opportunity for um, you know folks to to get into that world in a different way, but um, you know access is still important, and when we have access ac access challenges, we work on those. But really, communities are str are are struggling with new trail development because it's a very long and arduous process, and IMBA can help out at any part of that process. Um, and you know you've in our conversations you've mentioned Bentonville and. In Northwest Arkansas and Bentonville are getting a lot of play and a lot of people are, are seeing what's happening down there. Um, or they're getting involved in NICA 
and they suddenly have a high school mountain bike team or a middle school mountain biking team. But uh, a Nike parent is going, how come we have to drive so far to trails? How come there are no trails here? And our message is you could have trails there if um, you know you have somebody who can go through the process of helping realize trails. And, and that's where the 200 plus IMBA chapters and IMBA affiliated organizations have really done a lot of heavy lifting over the years. Um, not every organization is about new trail development, but a lot of them are. And, you know, IMBA has helped work with them at every step of the, of the process. And, you know, the process really starts with, you know, a vision of what's possible. And, you know, if you take, take it from there and you move into, you know, sort of a planning phase. Um, but what's really important is that this community engagement is really important at every step of the way. And anymore, we're seeing, you know, a few more headwinds when it comes to trail development um, because there's, there's some opposition to trails in places. Uh, but sometimes it's just because maybe it's just too mountain bike focused and we're not taking into consideration other trail users in a community because as soon as you drop trails in a community of any kind, you're going to have dog walkers, you're going to have hikers, you're going to have trail runners, you're going to have consistent trail users that also like trails close to home, but they're just not mountain bikers. Um, so what, what's good for us is also good for everybody else in our community too. And so, you know, going back to the conversation you and I had earlier about, do you call your organization a mountain bike association or do you, you know, try to make it wider and have it be a trail organization? When you do talk, start talking about, you know, envisioning and building a great trail system in a community, uh, if you bring those other folks in through the community engagement process, a lot of times you're going to get the ear of the, the decision makers, the land managers, you're going to have more support for your project because you're, you're considering other uses. You're not just you know, going out and building a bunch of jump lines and flow trails, even though that's where the idea may have started. So IMBA has resources from, from our IMBA local program uh, to some of our, our grant programs for funding for either for small projects or trail plans. Um, we've got the, the, the trail assessment, um, self-assessment tools, and we've got folks on our staff that can really help at, at any step of the process. And in, in putting all this together, we've identified that what we call trail champions are really important to the process. And you can probably think of, and maybe it's you uh, or some of your buddies who were the trail champions in your area. I mean, who drove and, and made the things happen? Uh, maybe not having done it all by themselves, but if, if, if it wasn't for that one person, you know, would it have, have happened? I think of the Palisade Plunge, a pretty iconic trail around Grand Junction, and and it was uh, you know a gentleman named Scott Winnens and and Rhonda who, without their vision and them going, hey guys, we could have a trail from the top of the Grand Mesa all the way to Palisades. We could do this. We can do this. Yeah, ultimately, it took the county commissioners and it took you know Colorado Park, Parks and Rec and and all these other folks, but without them driving it from that beginning, it never happened. So uh, we've really identified trail champions as being a key focus for us. And if we can, everything we can do to resource, coach, and educate trail champions on the process, then they're going to be much more effective at navigating it and getting their community through it so that that vision goes all the way through and ends up with, you know, construction and, and stewardship at the end. How do you maintain what you just built? Uh, so we've got resources for every step of the way. Funding is a big part of that. Uh, there was a time when it was all volunteers, you know, Imba was saying, hey, don't worry, we'll plan it, we'll, we'll design it, we'll build it, we'll maintain it, we'll do all that for free. You guys don't have to do anything. Now we're saying, 
actually, you know what? In all these community surveys that you guys are putting out for Parks and Rec, trails are almost always landing at the very top. And that you're expecting that to be a free thing, a free amenity for your community, but you're going to build pickleball courts and you're going to build a skate park and you're going to build a swimming pool. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of a disconnect here. So we're really trying to push natural surface trails into that hard infrastructure category that has a line item in the budget for planning, design, and construction, as well as a line item in the budget for maintenance, because now we're starting to see some of these successful communities, and we're a good example, we've got 75, 80 miles of trail adjacent to Gunnison, and that's just a little bit too much for, for a small band of volunteers to really you know maintain well. So we have a, a paid trail crew now, and we still do volunteer work. Volunteers are you know, an add-on to what our paid trail crews can do. And we're seeing that in more and more places. And it could be the, um, the organization, like what we're doing here, or it could be, hey, Parks and Rec, you've got, you know, you're paying staff to mow the lawns on the ball fields. You need to also pay the staff to, um, you know, do the trail maintenance. Plus, a lot of the, the maintenance now is becoming highly technical because the, the trails are becoming highly technical. Jump lines, flow trails, big berms, you know, a bunch of volunteers who've never done trail work with, with hand tools, you know, it just isn't that effective nor impactful. Um, so there's a lot of, of elements that, that we're working on. And, you know, we when we started, we got rid of some of the things where we felt like we had a little mission creep that had taken place before. And I say we, we've got a, I might be the executive director. And oftentimes in nonprofits, that person is the leader. But we've got a CEO, uh, Ken McNeil, and he's fantastic. And he's truly the boss. We work closely together. But, um, you know, in the org chart, I report to him and I'm happy to do so. He, he's, you know, he's got a lot of uh, experience in business. I'm more visionary and, um, you know, work on the fundraising side. We're, we're a really good team, but, um, you know, we're just, we, we, you know, we had a, the instructor certification program at Amba. That was really cool. National Mountain Bike Patrol. That's really cool. Um, but those were programs that were pulling us away from our core competency, which is, you know, helping communities realize great trails so that then that kind of programming can take place. And so we've left, you know, that to others and we try to stay out of the programming, um, but work only on programs that advance trails on the ground. And, uh, that, you know, if you look at our website, you can see a lot of different programs that we have. Um, Trail Labs Foundations, which is a really cool two-day seminar where we're either in Bentonville or we're in Cedar City, Utah. And we'll, we'll probably, you know, have those in different places where we go through this whole process and we teach community leaders you know, here's, here's what you need to bring trails to your community. Uh, and people come out of that just super jazzed about what's possible. And they have the, the sort of the recipe for what it's going to take, even though they may still need to lean on some Imba resources at times as we go. Um, trail care sc schools are just where we can come into a community and take anybody who's interested from your community and walk them through um, a very in-depth, um, you know, trail building and trail maintenance program, just get you know, very technical skills, land manager training. You know, we can help local land managers who may not have that trail expertise uh, come into a community and, and educate land managers. Uh, trail accelerator workshops, that's a one-on-one, -on -one. that's a community engagement um, program where we'll come into a community and we'll do a, a, a one-day workshop. There's no field work here, but, you know, really bringing together how important all those different relationships and partnerships are to, to make a trail system come to life um, or, or a trail vision. It's not just, you know, the mountain bikers digging in the dirt anymore and putting a, a huge emphasis on planning now. 
A lot of trails around the country were designed one trail at a time. You probably can think of examples in your area as opposed to, okay, we've got this, you know, this parcel or these distinct parcels in a community. Let's do a bike park here. Let's do a pump track here. Let's do a place for, for dog walking and walking and trail running only over here. Let's do a jump line over here. Let's do some cross country here. You know, when you get to that point, then you can phase your, your, your build um, and build it out in such a way. And then you're looking holistically at your, your community and what's possible. Oftentimes it might just be one parcel. Yeah, well, what are we going to do with this parcel? Can we weave all of these elements into this one parcel? Other times it's, you know, we've got different pieces that we can use for different things. And in underserved and underrepresented communities, oftentimes that don't have as much green space, we need to, you know, be a little bit sharper in our planning. So what, what could work here? We're going to have to, you know, maybe do a pump track and a skills loop. Um, you know, there's a lot of different, uh, different planning elements that are so important. So we're really, you know, saying plan, plan, plan. And to that, one of our grant programs is called the Trail Accelerator Grant. And, you know, this was our realization that oftentimes a trail plan will unlock funding for the next steps in your process, which are construction typically. So uh, a community can apply for a trail accelerator grant. It's a 50-50 match. So they, they need to come to the table with, with half of the money in cash. Trail plans are usually from five to $30,000. So let's just say it's a $15,000 plan total. That community comes in with 7,500. IMBA matches it with value in kind of 7,500. And at the end of the, the day, that community has a, a, a trail plan uh, that's done by land, landscape architects. Um, and experienced trail planners that then they can go to the funders and, and other folks with. And we realized that um, uh, $577,000 of trail accelerator grants that we gave out, that unlocked $12.8 million primarily in construction. So we're seeing like a 20 times return on this, the, the, these dollars invested in planning because it's really hard to, to get that traction when you're just explaining to someone what you're going to do. Uh, but a plan really, oh, wow, we can, we can do this. And, you know, land management agencies, they don't do anything without a plan. Parks and Rec, they're not going to build a skate park without a plan. You're not going to build pickleball right. without a plan. So, again, it's another step in just trying to take our world and put it in that world of, of hard infrastructure. Um, and there are other programs as well. If you go to imba.com and just kind of peruse the website, you'll see uh, a lot of different offerings from the IMBA local program uh, for local organizations um, to some of these funding programs. The Dig In um, is another funding program, Dig In. It's powered by Shimano, and it's a, more of a crowdfunding opportunity for generally smaller projects, but communities need to build a bridge or they want to build uh, just a single trail or, or something. Maybe it's got a price tag of 10, 15, 20, even $50,000. Um, if you raise $5,000, Shimano will match that with $5,000. Um, and then it has national and even international reach. Um, as we promote it on our website and in our social media, so you can get other folks, you know, contributing to the project. And the, the ones that we've seen do the best also do, you know, quite a good marketing campaign of their own. Um, but we're seeing nice sums of money raised for smaller projects through our, our Dig In program, which is powered by Shimano. Um, and there's there's other other things as well um, that that uh, that Imba's up to. But really, it all has to do with you know creating great trails for people. And, um, and that's for, for economic development for communities, and it's for health and wellness for people. Um, and the more people can get outside and, and be on trails, whether they're riding bicycles or running or walking, um, you know, it just makes people happier and healthier and communities more prosperous. So 
we're all about whatever it takes to, to keep going down that road. And um, we're expanding our, our offerings and our resources. And, and yeah, you're right. Imba, Imba kind of spiraled down. Imba was, you know, had some challenges. Subaru abruptly pulled out before I came on board. That sent the organization into a tailspin. And, and that really was, we're still trying to recover from that. Um, a little bad PR around, you know, bicycles in wilderness and, and e-bikes, um, which now e-bikes aren't even a thing anymore, even though, you know, we got killed for it about, you know, six, six years ago uh, when e-bikes were still relatively um, much, a, they were pretty much a ghost on trails. You know, we were talking all about them, but they weren't there. Now there's tons of e-bikes out there uh, and, and e-bikes aren't going anywhere. And we've probably all, you know, seen the stories of where, you know, someone that we know that, that should be on an e-bike finally got one. And we've got a friend here, and finally, he's on an e-bike. And he, he was out there just killing himself on, a, on an analog bike and not really having much fun and not riding that much. Now he's riding all the time and, and having a great time. So, you know, still some challenges with, with technology. Um, but, uh, no, Imba's on really good footing now. And, um, you know, we're really one of the only organizations that's working on this off-road infrastructure um, you know, in, in a way that, that we're actually, in addition to putting it on the ground ourselves, we're, you know, hands-on with organizations and partners all around the country and even internationally who are putting it on the ground. So that's our measurement. You know, we want to impact 250 communities by the year 2025, and we're well on our way to that. We've got, you know, hundreds of communities in our pipeline and lots of people raising their hands going, we're in, we want trails, we read all about you know, the Northwest Arkansas or Cedar City or one of these other places, where do we start? Please help us. So, um, you know, it's an exciting time for trails and it's an exciting time for Imba. And, um, you know, a lot, lot of good stuff going on out there. For sure. You've answered about 18 of my questions. <laughs> um, one of which was, um, we've got a local organization. Imba was instrumental in our having uh, a single seven-mile mountain bike trail in Des Moines in, well, 25 years ago. 1998, the county voted to pursue this uh, seven-mile section of trail and uh, open it to mountain bikes. And that seven miles has turned into about 14. And there's another trail system in town that's another dozen miles. And then there's another six miles at another park and then we're developing a whole nother on the east side of Des Moines a whole nother um I don't know probably 10 miles of trails and it all began with Imba and the trail care crew yeah. which was brand new we were kicked out of uh, a local park in 1996 September 10th 1996 not that I remember that day or anything um, uh, PTSD. It was, it was a crazy hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who were all anti-mountain biking. And I was selected as the spokesperson at this, uh, at this rave. <laughs> it was the county board meeting and they were voting whether to, you know, keep the trails open or, uh, kick us out and holy moly. Um, but, uh, um, so that was 96, 97 was the first trail care crew. They came right out and walked trails with us. They walked trails with the County and, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, 
the state uh, DNR, the city of Des Moines, like all of the um, uh, land managers in central Iowa, uh, trail care crew. I think we had them out three or four times. Uh, instrumental in educating us, instrumental in educating our um, public leadership, if you will, and instrumental in us securing that first seven miles of, of trail. And like you said, it was like, it, it was just a trail that was there. We didn't build it. And it is all volunteer. And I love what you said. One of the questions as we celebrate 25 years on this trail um, and our organization that helps maintain the, all of our trails, Central Iowa Trail Association, is we became an IMBA affiliate. Is that the right word? In, I don't know, 97, 98. And we're still an affiliate. And one of the questions was, why should we be an affiliate? And I feel like you answered that by saying, look, get your municipalities, your public, whoever, whether it's a county or the city, to treat it like they would a baseball field or a tennis court or a pickleball court. Like they resurface the tennis court once every five, like they put a ton of money into the tennis court. They put a ton of money into the baseball fields. They put a ton of money into basketball courts and the playgrounds and the skate parks. Yet the trails are managed by volunteers. Hey, who can come out and bring your shovel? That doesn't make sense when you say it like that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So it, it, it's a, it's a, we need your help again. <laughs> it's a change for some communities. There's still, you know, organizations doing great work with volunteers and we don't want to, you know, um, diminish that at all. But not every community has that. A lot of communities are struggling with volunteers. Volunteer leadership is hard. I mean, it's not for everybody to have, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 or 100 people show up and then be able to organize them and have something productive come out of that. <laughs> Correct. You're absolutely right about that, for sure. The optics of volunteerism um, are really important, but sometimes it's that, that's more like, it's just that there's this many people who were, would, would be interested in volunteering their time. We don't always look at, okay, what, what was the product that they produced? And again, a lot of times it's great, but other times um, it, it isn't always, and, and you, you see what professionals are building now. And mountain bikers demand, mountain bikers demand, you know, there's very few volunteer organizations that can, you know, really build well what mountain bikers want to ride these days oh it's it's crazy and you've you've mentioned bentonville and bentonville is so paradigm changing again we took over a trail that existed we have gotten out there with a a rake and a hoe and a pair of clippers and we've crafted more single track but Gosh, Bentonville, it's professionally built. It's in the center of town. Everything is linked together. It's such a different paradigm. I've, I've heard it described as a ski area style of town for mountain bikes, and it totally is. You've got black runs and green runs and blue runs, and they all interconnect, and you just you go to the center of town, and then you can go anywhere. And I can't imagine that other communities are not paying attention. Is there a shift in how trails are going to be developed and presented? Um, or is there still space for the guys with the rake and hoe who go out and cut 
a mile at a time through their local local woods. Well, there's like there's does still, it happen both ways? Absolutely, and there's still there's still space for that. Um, we would like to see those communities though have a plan, and if it's just that one you know one trail at a time kind of thing, you're going to end up with you know a system that may not function all that well or what we've seen in the past is that mountain bikers build what they want to ride and they build hard and harder. And that's really what happened in the nineties is we ended up with a lot of hard and harder trails right now. Um, in trail solutions, we, we can build, you know, a technical rock tech, double black, you know, crazy thing that I won't even consider riding. Uh, we can build big jump lines and we can build beginner trail. Beginner trail is really hard to build. And, and that, that's what is missing in a lot of places. Um, certainly we want to see more, you know, challenging trails for skill progression and we can do those and those should be part of any good plan. You should have that rock tech jump lines, all that, but you also need to have some fantastic beginner trails too, family friendly greens. And what we think is a green oftentimes isn't really a green for truly a beginner mountain biker. We've got adults that have never ridden bicycles before. And, and then some of them are even getting put on e-bikes, you know, to make it even a little bit more challenging. Like here's a heavier bike that actually pedals itself. Um, just to make it interesting. So a great system, in our opinion, has everything. It's got greens, it's got blues, it's got, you know, the variety of blacks that you want because there's black jump lines and there's, you know, black, you know, tech lines. Um, and that's where the planning process comes in. Then you start to, to put all those pieces in. Do you have a NICA team? Do you need an event, an event venue for, for NICA races or trail running races or something like that? We can plan that in. Does your park get inundated by NICA practices so that, you know, in the afternoon, there's just kids on mountain bikes everywhere. This is what happens in Utah and a few other places is that trail systems get completely taken over by, by you know, kids on bikes. And it's a great thing, but there are ways that you can say, hey, let's build a really great practice venue over in this part of the park. And let's save this part of the park for the general public to use during those after school hours so that we're not, you know, monopolizing the entire park with, with kids on bikes. So that planning piece is so important. And um, it seems to... It can happen with the volunteers. I mean, volunteers can, can follow a plan. So certainly would never want to dismiss that idea. But more and more, um, our organizations, I think, are becoming sort of the, you know, the, the players of relationships and putting pieces together so that then things happen. Because you don't have to have a shovel in your hands necessarily to make things happen. And, you know, once you can kind of think about that part of it and maybe let go of a few things and let some things happen organically or through sort of a team approach, um, what you may end up with may not have been exactly what you had envisioned, but it might even be just a little bit better and serve a broader cross-section of your community. So, um, you know, we really like it heading in that direction. It doesn't mean that, that, that clubs and organizations are any less important. It just means that some of those roles might shift into, you know, what could be more compelling roles. And there's still going to be those opportunities to help out on the volunteer side um, I don't think those will ever go away, but it's, it's really trying to think, um, in a different way about how we, you know, how we realize trails and the, the planning piece, the community engagement, bringing everybody in, widening our vision so that we're not just seeing mountain biking. Now, if you have a park and they're like, we want this to be a mountain biking park, we'll go whole hog mountain biking there. Um, but just know that if there are people living around there and there are no other trails, you know, there's going to be a guy with a labradoodle and a latte walking up the jump line every single morning. Um, so it'd be, nice sure. to, it'd be nice to give him, you know, that nice place for, for him to walk his dog. Uh, and the same for other trail users. And that's where, you know, bringing the other stakeholders into the, into the process of community engagement is really important. And 
what needs to be, you know, an important part of that is, is great mountain biking. Obviously it's not, you know, we don't want to diminish the, the opportunities for mountain biking. And we have some examples of this. Uh, folks can look up Corner Canyon Trails in Draper City, Utah. Uh, they've got a great map online, over 100 miles of trail. A lot of it is multiple use, but a lot of it is directional mountain bike optimized or hiker horse only, or um, bikes can go up and can't come back down. But that trail happens to take bikes to you know three or four different great bike optimized descent lines. And, and it's a busy trail system with lots of mountain bikes, lots of hikers, lots of trail runners, quite a few horses. And it works really well, and it's what we call a modern trail system. And that's what we're trying to, to promote is we need more directional trails for mountain bikes because, let's face it, we're fast. We go fast, and, and every once in a while, we'd love to be able to ride and let go of our brakes and relax a little bit. And we can do that on directional trails. Um, and then at the same time, there's dog walkers and walkers and runners that might like to be on a trail where they're not worried about mountain bikers. I mean, how many times have I seen this at a trailhead? All right, kids, there's mountain bikes on this trail, and they're hikers. There's mountain bikes on this trail, so if you hear a mountain biker, you got to get off the trail so you don't get run over. And we see it all the time. Hikers are just, they're kind of on pins and needles all the time. But as soon as they get on a trail where they know they're not going to see mountain bikers, they can relax too. So we can have, you know, those best elements of both of our worlds um, in the same system, in the same community. Um, but that takes a lot of planning and collaboration and cooperation um, but there's examples of it now. A lot of directional trails um, up in the upper Midwest. Um, you know, so we're just going to continue to evolve. Um, you know, the way we the way we, we package and assemble trails and and looking at the whole community, I think, is really important too. Because then you start to to see where the people are and what opportunities are available and where could you be sort of mountain bike heavy. Where do you maybe want to you know have some trails that that bikes may not be allowed on, and how do you put all those elements together in a way that works well for everybody. I feel like it's time for phase two in our community, which is uh, everything you just said there, the directional trails, the uh, how many times I, I still have a bell on my bike because of the blind corners. I don't know if there's going to be a bike heading towards me or somebody walking their dog around the corner. So I'm ding, ding, ding all the time. And if it were a directional trail, lay off the brakes and roll and smile and ride. Yeah. And the people walking their dogs don't have to worry about it. You brought up so many great points that I feel like maybe it's time to bring Imba back in and take a look at what we have and offer some like, hey, did you think about this? Or what if you that? Or what if you this? And it might really help to improve our trails as opposed to just, hey, we've got these trails. Let's go ride mountain bikes. Yeah. Yeah. And look, let me let me bring one other element in that you and I talked about earlier, and that's um, the Trails Are Common Ground movement. If anybody goes to trailsarecommonground.org, um, Imba pulled together trail users, uh, walkers, runners, mountain bikers, uh, equestrians, and, and traditional motorized users. And we formed this Trails Are Common Ground um, coalition, if you will. And there's really three principles. And the first one is inclusivity. Hey, let's make sure that everybody in our country has access to trails and feels safe and welcome on trails, uh, regardless of how they're using trails. Uh, the second part is responsible use, uh, basically trail etiquette. And we decided, you know, let's lead with kindness. If you're going to be one thing out there, just be kind. You know, if you're kind, um, you know, that will probably take care of a lot of the issues you may have. Um, secondly, um, be aware, be aware of your surroundings. Don't just you know, tune out out there and, and think you're the only person out there, you know, pay attention, look around a little bit. Uh, if you're riding a horse or a mountain bike or, or a moto, you want to be a little bit cautious. If you're trail running, 
and, and mainly for blind corners. I mean, blind corners are, are an 800-pound gorilla in the, the room of trails. So a little bit of caution doesn't hurt. And then the third part of the, the responsible use is, is knowledge. Over time, you know, continue to add to your knowledge of what to do in different situations as you're riding your mountain bike or your e-bike or walking or running or, or riding a horse or whatever. Um, you know what to do if you come up upon a, a, a pack stock, a trail ride of 18 horses going the same direction you're going up a narrow single track. What do you do in that situation? I mean, that's an extreme example, but let's always be building our knowledge and never feel like we arrived. And then the third pillar is that trail modernization piece, which we just talked about a lot. And that's just how can we assemble trails in a way that works better for all trail users so that we actually increase the carrying capacity of a system, lower the opportunities for conflict within the system, and increase user satisfaction by all users, regardless of how they're using the trails, whether they're mountain biking, riding a horse, trail running, uh, whatever they're doing. They're going away going, I just had a great time on the trails because we want people going back. We want people to be happier and healthier. It's going to make our country a better place. If more people in our country who are, who are all, you know, sort of fractionalized, if they all went out on trails and I think we'd all start getting along better. So maybe pop trails are a common ground. <laughs> trails are common ground.org. Check it out. Yeah, I love it. I love the work you're doing and I love, um, I don't know. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Love talking about the old days. Ah, man, I sound so old when I talk like that. But I mean, been around a long time, right? <laughs> we are. Yep, yep. Uh, but still riding um, and uh, and loving life for sure. I you're still on a bike and still uh, still jamming out. Oh yeah, no, I ride uh, any chance I get, and um, um, still enjoy hiking and. And skiing in the wintertime and, and, you know, fat biking around here. You guys have great fat biking, I know, in the upper Midwest. Uh, we've, we've gotten into that the last few years, and there's some gr grooming that takes place. It makes it really fun. And, um, yeah, you know, that's the one thing. It seems like I've, I talked to a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, my back hurts and, th and this injury, that injury. But, but if I get on my bike, I'm good. And, um, you know, I feel kind of that way, too. I feel pretty old, and I get on my bike. I'm like, oh, okay, I feel pretty good. So, no, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna keep riding. Susan and I ride together a lot and um we'll just keep doing it we're, it's fall here now so we never know how long we can ride and then we have to um you know transition to all different kinds of skiing but you know you kind of know that drill where you're living too it's not a, yep, not no a doubt. bad switch yeah it is not a bad switch i i feel like skiing and i've said it on this podcast many times before but downhill skiing and mountain biking give me the same joyous feelings yeah. i just love that flow and the freedom and the sometimes the speed and yeah they're, just, I love they're it. similar rolling over the earth and sliding over the earth they kind of have a similar feel and the, the wind in the hair and all that or on the helmet whatever it is yep they do and you do still have some hair <laughs> <laughs> i do not it's no wind through the hair well dave uh gal i didn't even talk about you're in the mountain bike hall of fame mountain bike hall of famer um imba executive director um, just all around good guy when you said uh, just be kind I think you summed up who you are as a human being so um, always appreciated um, uh, knowing you from Leadville and um, your kindness to take time on the podcast today really appreciate it well thank you it's been uh, great to, to catch up with you again and, and thanks for having me it's an honor to be here for sure Gosh, what an honor to talk to Dave. His passion for building strong, healthy, happy communities 
through trails is so obvious. We're fortunate to have him working so hard so we can get out and ride, run, and hike, not only in beautiful parks around the world, but close to home as well. Be sure and connect with the International Mountain Bike Association at imba.com and check out the new organization, Trails Are Common Ground, at trailsarecommonground.org and you can help make our trails a happier place for everyone. Speaking of our happy place, the Core 4 is hoping you have a happy day next August. Check it out. Who's ready for some Core 4 news? After a huge spike in riders and a super thank you to everyone for coming out this year, these guys jumped right back into the fire. It's no surface untouched again for 2024 because Core 424 has a sweet sound to it, no doubt. New routes, new distances, and a new you. That's right, y'all, they are mixing it up with more surprises and delights. New for 24 is the Core 40 distance. Just a bump up from the 20 mile and still has all the farmscapes and B roads and champagne gravel you'd expect from the folks at Core 4, just without the single track. They're telling us 60 is the new 50, miles that is. It's a no-surfaced, untouched, podium-eligible route with all the cats in addition to their marquee 100-mile event. It's the perfect blend of competition and community. We want Core 4 to be on your event calendar for 2024. Jump on Bike Reg today, snag your spot before this event reaches its cap. Come ride the wave and get more bodies on bikes. It's blazing hot action every year and they'll keep the fire stoked all winter long with the 20, 40, 60 or 100 mile route Core 424 has something for everyone. It's time for the next time. Let's go. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's show, I would love it if you would rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook as well. And of course, now we are on YouTube. If you really love the show, I would welcome you to support it financially. Just look for Bike Talk with Dave at buymeacoffee.com. Drop a few coins in the cup. And when you do, I will send you a sticker. And remember, every episode is available on your computer or other device at biketalk.bike. I hope you have a great week and remember that nothing compares to the simple pleasure of riding a bicycle.